This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. The night, everything changed, waiting for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, written and read by Luke Harding. It was the evening before everything changed. The Ukrainian novelist, Andrei Kurkov, had invited me for dinner, a few friends, he said, and Borsch. We had first met earlier that memorable winter, a pleasant meal in a Georgian restaurant in Padil, a neighbourhood in the lower part of Kiev, next to the Dnipro River. The date was now February the 23rd, 2022. It was 8.15pm and I was late. I stopped in a shop, bought a bottle of colonist port from a winery in Odessa and hurried to Kukov's flat. These meetings happened under the shadow of war. The news was alarming, terrible even. A week earlier, Russian-backed separatists had shelled a village in Ukrainian-controlled territory next to the pro-Russian regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. The missile had landed in a school gym. Mercifully, no one was killed, but the eight-year conflict in the east was heating up. Humour was essential in these dark times. Kirchhoff sent me a meme via WhatsApp. It showed Fyodor Dostoevsky's head floating surreally in a hole in the school's wall, peering at the rubble. Around the great 19th-century Russian writer were soccer balls, a mural depicting a jungle and a climbing rope. Kirchhoff was an agreeable companion, the author of many playful and magically luminous books, and Ukraine's most celebrated living writer. Also, Remarkably, he was an optimist. I, by contrast, was increasingly gloomy. The omens pointed in one scarcely believable direction. Russia was about to invade Ukraine. Vladimir Putin had a long-standing interest in Ukraine. In 2014, he responded to a pro-European uprising in Kiev by annexing Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and coordinating a counter-rebellion in the Donbass a region subsequently controlled in part by Russia-installed rebels. By the end of the decade, 
it had grown into a brooding obsession. The crisis had been growing since autumn 2020, like a fog rolling in. First, Putin had sent troops, tanks and armoured vehicles to Russia's western border with Ukraine, and to Belarus, a brother state that Moscow had practically absorbed. The vehicles bore a curious white symbol, the letter V. Next, Putin had issued a series of demands, so imperious and swaggering you could only marvel at their audacity. He sought nothing less than the annulment of the security infrastructure that has governed Europe for the three decades since the Soviet Union's 1991 collapse. Further, he wanted the Biden administration to guarantee Ukraine would never join NATO, the United States-led military alliance set up in 1949 to contain the Soviet Union. Additionally, Russia's president demanded that NATO take its forces and equipment out of European countries that had once been Cold War satellites, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, plus the Baltic states. These countries had joined NATO after 1997. Now Moscow wanted to wind the clock back. Putin's apparent goal was to recreate the USSR's sphere of influence that had existed across the European continent behind what Winston Churchill called an Iron Curtain. This zone encompassed Belarus and Ukraine, historic Russian lands as Putin saw them, unjustly separated from Moscow by Bolshevik blunder and Western meddling. Diplomatic attempts to appease him, a trip to Moscow by France's president Emmanuel Macron, and the offer of a superpower summit from the White House had gone nowhere. Meanwhile, new Russian tactical battalion groups assembled on Ukraine's borders. Satellite images revealed an array of lethal modern weapons. Sukhoi fighter jets, Buk anti-aircraft missile systems, short-range artillery, fuel and transport vehicles. On that Monday, two days before my Borsch invitation, Putin held an extraordinary summit of his Security Council, Russia's top decision-making body. His spy chiefs, senior government colleagues and foreign minister all gave their support for a plan to recognise the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, DNR and LNR, as independent. It was a bizarre display of fealty in Moscow. Whatever misgivings council members may have had were left unsaid. Putin's decision pushed the button on a broader Russian military intervention in Ukraine, which has been a sovereign state for 30 years. The DNR and LNR claimed territory in the Donbass that was under the control of Kiev's pro-Western government, led by President Vladimir Zelensky, a former TV star. An unsuccessful eight-year dialogue, named after Minsk, the Belarusian capital, over the status of these Russian-controlled zones, was over. A terrible succession was dawning. Putin was seeking to resolve these political questions of lordship and allegiance, language and identity, using tactics familiar from Russia's dark past. Bombs, destruction and the murder of civilians. Over the last decade, Russia had levelled Aleppo and other Syrian cities and demolished Grozny during two Chechen wars, the second 
as Putin came to power in 2000. The immediate enemy this time was Ukraine, as well as its Atlanticist leadership. But the war that would play out in 2022 would be bigger and more epochal, a moment when the world was forever transformed. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz called it a Zeitenwender, literally a time's turn, a turning point in history. It would mark the end of a period of relative peace that began in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. To paraphrase Lenin, there are decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. Russia's invasion would become the largest armed conflict on European territory since 1945, an attempt by one nation to devour another. From everywhere other than Moscow, it looked like a classic imperial raid against a refractory one-time colony. Putin's justification for his adventure seemed preposterous. His aim to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, a country led by a Jewish president. More plausible was the axiom that without Ukraine, Russia could never be an empire or a great power. There was the threat of example, moreover. Ukraine was home to millions of native Russian speakers. If it could become a successful Western-style democracy where critical voices were allowed, then so could Russia. The consequences of invasion would be transformative, not least for international relations. In a matter of days, unthinkable things happened. Sweden and Finland abandoned neutrality. Germany, pacifism. The United Kingdom, post-Brexit estrangement from European neighbours. Poland and Hungary, antipathy towards refugees. By showing solidarity with Ukraine, the United States and its allies found a role, a new moral purpose and a collective resilience. Russia's battle went beyond Ukraine. It was, to a large degree, a proxy war against the West. The Glavny Protivnik was the United States, the chief adversary in dry KGB language, as well as other democratic governments that had armed the Ukrainians. Washington had sent ammunition and javelin anti-tank missiles. London, the next generation light anti-tank weapon or NLAW system. The Baltic states, additional hardware. These defensive shipments enraged Moscow. As conceived in the Kremlin, the war was something else too, a civilizational struggle. One ideological foe was decadent liberalism. In the view of the Russian Orthodox patriarch Kirill I, who defended and blessed Putin's endeavour, Europe was permissive and anti-family. The conflict's scope extended into a transcendent realm. Russia's armoured vehicles were marked with a mystical Z. What the letter meant was unclear. It became the main propaganda symbol of Russia's invasion. In sum, Putin wanted nothing less than a new world order. Since becoming Russian president in 2000, he had frequently complained about the post-Second World War international system. It led to American hegemony and triumphalism, to disastrous Western interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and to blatant encroachment by NATO into Russia's neighbourhood, he said. Ukraine had become an anti-Russian project, Putin added, hatched by the CIA. 
This state of affairs had become intolerable. It was time to end it. Russian foreign ministry officials were evasive about how this might come about. They promised a military technical answer. The dinner was special. Kirchhoff and his British wife Elizabeth had invited a handy group of guests. Brazil's ambassador to Kiev, who was still in the Ukrainian capital after many of his diplomatic colleagues had fled. The head of the city's medical history museum, which had its own subterranean morgue. And two writers working for Politico and the New York Review of Books. I apologise for being late. Kokov brought me a bowl of borscht. It was delicious. There was honey vodka, Odessan wine, and pork zakuski. Kirchhoff passed around fascinating material taken from the files of the Bolshevik secret police. The daughter of a KGB general had discovered them in an attic after her father's death. They were source material for Kirchhoff's latest novel and included records of interrogations, some typed, others written in curling Cyrillic letters. The papers dated from 1917 to 1921, when the Red Army had swept away a short-lived, independent Ukrainian parliament based in Kiev and had reclaimed the city for Lenin's new Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Among the files were black and white photos of police suspects. They included three young men, one with crimped black hair, wearing a white blouse. Circus performers, the records said. There were portraits of a bourgeois young woman, smiling, debutante-like, and more conventional prison-style mugshots of arrestees with shaved heads. Most, I suspected, vanished into the vortex of the 1920s and 30s. Was history repeating itself a century later, with Moscow once more snuffing out Ukraine's independence with another invasion? Despite the premonitions, war that evening seemed unreal. Surely Putin was bluffing. His maximalist posture on NATO and European security was a gambit, was it not? The international community had listened politely to Putin's tirades, shot through with familiar anti-Western grudges and paranoia. In theory, Ukraine might join NATO. To say it couldn't would be to violate the country's democratic rights. But whisper it in Brussels, where the headquarters of NATO is located. Nobody expected Ukraine to join the alliance soon, if ever. Putin, though, appeared to dwell in a strange and unreachable realm. He had gone beyond what you might imagine to be rational considerations of self-interest. The United States, the European Union and the United Kingdom had threatened the Kremlin with massive consequences should it attack Ukraine. These included a package of devastating sanctions that would destroy Russia's economy if they were enacted. Did Putin really want to return Moscow to a pre-globalised existence? Sans visa card payments, Big Macs and aircraft parts, a sort of grey 21st century USSR. And then there was Kiev. It was a colourful, modern European city of three million people with its cafes and restaurants, bolt cars and food delivery guys on pedal bikes, labouring up ancient cobbled boulevards, it felt like a cosmopolitan Berlin or a Prague 
you could order a taxi or an artisanal pizza by app. There was an art house cinema and an underground bar not far from the French Renaissance opera house. The bar was down a flight of steps in an unmarked basement, open Wednesdays and Saturdays by password only. A contemporary capital, in short, where hipsters navigated the hills on electric scooters. That evening, on the brink of war, people were out and about as usual. Kievites had come up with a term for a possible Russian invasion. Day X or Day X, never quite believing it would happen. I was staying in a hotel on Yaroslaviv Val. The street was close to the heart of the capital. I walked past pavement florists selling tulips from buckets and a violinist busking in her usual evening spot and playing Edith Piaf's La Vie en Rose. It was inconceivable that Russian missiles might soon be landing amid such varied humanity and beauty. Kiev's Art Nouveau mansions were painted in the faded colours of a Victorian stamp album. Lilac, buff, cerise and imperial green. My street was home to the Polish embassy. Across the road was the House of Actors, originally a synagogue, built in an imposing Moorish revival style. Four doors further along was a late 19th century building called the Baron's House, a neo-Gothic fantasy with a turret and two demonic gargoyles above the door. These demons, human body and torso, bat wings, dog-like faces, appeared to be in conversation with each other and passers-by beneath. They had seen and outlasted war, revolution and Nazi occupation. Further down the road was the neoclassical Renaissance Hotel. One brick face was unadorned, save for an incongruous recess carved 60 feet up. A solitary nude female figure sat in this niche, gazing down serenely. The dinner done, I embraced Kirchhoff and his wife before leaving to walk home. Their flat, it seemed at that moment, had everything you might wish for in life. Love, good conversation, books, paintings, and a tub filled with spring narcissi next to a kitchen window. Why would you ever leave such a place? But like most residents in the city, they had an emergency plan, should the worst happen, to set off for their dacha, one hour's drive west of Kiev, in a seven-seater vehicle filled with petrol. Out on the street, I took a call from a well-placed contact who had served in Ukraine's foreign ministry. He knew people, information, rumour, It was approaching midnight. The sky was a dark, shiny velvet. The invasion, he said, would begin at 4 a.m. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. The story continues right after this. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. I slept little. The Russian operation began, practically on schedule, soon after 4.30am local time. Distant explosions and the whine of car alarms were heard across the capital. A nation shook itself awake. What had been foretold by the United States and other Western governments, by military experts and, late in the day, by President Zelensky himself, was actually happening. Putin was attacking and invading Ukraine. His apparent goal, the annihilation of a country, a culture and its citizens. There had been danger signals, intelligence briefings, shared among government agencies, diplomatic dispatches, sober assessments in the New York Times. And yet... It seemed impossible in the 21st century. With imperial swagger, Russian troops, tanks and planes were on the move. The disaster unfurled on a grey, ordinary Thursday morning, sprinkled by rain. By 5am, friends and loved ones were calling each other, peering into their phones, clicking on news updates and making existential decisions. Stay or flee. Some packed and got ready to leave. Others took refuge in apartment building basements, wondering if the horror might pass. Alerted by colleagues, I threw on my boots and coat and took the stairs to the hotel's underground garage. The floor filled up with staff and guests. A family arrived. A mother shepherded her two children to safety. The kids perched on chairs. They were carrying colouring books. The war was no longer abstract, a matter for opinion columns, and think tanks. 
it was a bringer of random death, if not to these children, then to others. By breakfast, the scale of Russia's multitudinous military assault became apparent. Putin's ambitions, it turned out, went beyond the Donbass, where, he tendentiously claimed, a genocide was going on. They included pretty much the entire country, east, south, north, and even west. The port city of Mariupol, on the Sea of Azov, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, home to 1.5 million people, Odessa, and Kherson on the Black Sea, Ukrainian-controlled towns on the eastern front line, all were being bombed and pulverized. Russia was clinically targeting Ukraine's defenses, airports, military bases, ammunition dumps. It was shock and awe, done with a ruthless indifference to human cost. Sleep-deprived, it was hard for me to make sense of Moscow's developing war plan, but the bold strokes were visible. An attempted blitzkrieg was underway. The ultimate target was Kiev and its US-backed government. Putin, you suspected, would wish to kill or capture Zelensky and replace him with a pro-Russian puppet governor and administration. Amid this ferocious onslaught, there were moments of normality. The bombs didn't appear to be close, so I ventured outside. It was cold, just above zero. I wore a flak jacket and a woolly hat. A few residents were walking their dogs. The first queues had formed outside cash machines. Most shops and cafes were closed, but Aroma Coffee had opened as usual, selling croissant and takeout, as if nothing very remarkable had happened. Among the locals I spoke to that morning, the mood was one of shock, fear, and quiet disgust that Putin, without cause or reasonable pretext, had decided on war. I passed by the Golden Gate, a Soviet replica of an early fortification built by Prince Yaroslav the Wise during the times of Kievan Rus, the city's early medieval dynasty. 24 hours earlier, a floppy-haired guitarist had been singing oasis numbers in the gardens. Now it was deserted. Its metro station would soon become a bomb shelter. I turned left towards the old city and its cathedral square. Kiev's familiar sights were intact. The bells of St. Michael's Monastery tolled the hour, as they had in ages past. The gold-domed cathedral sits across the plaza from St. Sophia, a second great cathedral that dates from the Byzantine 11th century. I took a photo of St. Sophia's Baroque turquoise bell tower, just in case. The ensemble of religious buildings is close to the headquarters of the SBU, Ukraine's security service, at number 33, Volodymyrskaya, to the offices of the border guard and to Kiev's city police department. All were obvious targets for Russian bombs. The monument to Bogdan Kimelnitsky, the 17th century Cossack leader, was still in place. Kimelnitsky sat on a black horse across from St. Sophia, his mace pointing to the northeast, towards Russia. The square's playground was empty, home now to a few jackdaws and a dog. With scant traffic, the birdsong seemed louder. I walked down Mikhailovska Street towards Maidan, Nezhelizhnosti, which translates as Independence Square. This 
was the scene of the 2004 and 2014 uprisings against the country's pro-Russian elites. At its center was a column signifying Ukraine's independence, a gold statue of a woman holding a rose branch perched on top. How long would she remain there? Statues came and went. An empty plinth marked where Lenin once stood at the bottom of Shevchenko Boulevard. The Maidan was normally busy with tourists and shoppers stopping for lunch in the food court of the Globus Mall. They had vanished. A few people waited in the rain for a trolley bus. A coffee kiosk had opened up. I spoke to a customer, Viktor Alexeyevich. Russia is 100% wrong, he told me. What would he do now? I'm going to take my grandson out of the city and then I will come back, he said. I don't have any weapons, but I'm ready to defend my country. Viktor said he had phoned his son when he heard the first Russian explosions rock the city's outskirts. He turned on the TV. He had watched Zelensky address the nation, introduce martial law, and urge citizens to be calm. Putin is the aggressor here, Viktor told me. He's invaded Ukraine because we don't want to live under his strictures, his model. The model, feudal domination by Moscow, was, Viktor said, unappealing. Another customer, Ludmilla, a young city police officer who had popped out for coffee, said she would carry on. I didn't sleep last night, she said. I tried to sleep before work, but I couldn't manage it. Cheerio, she added with a grin. She returned to her office. Three Ukrainian soldiers in uniform joined the Maidan coffee queue. They were cheerful. Oleg Olegovich, a 30-year-old officer, said he had been summoned at 4am. His office was in the centre of the city. Civilians are leaving, but we will stay, he said. Could Ukraine defeat mighty Russia with its vast air power and Black Sea Navy? We will smash them, he said. The military is in good shape. Our communications are working. During these first hours of invasion, shaped by confusion and dread, the nation's fate was hard to predict. Ukraine's armed forces were in better shape than in 2014 when they wilted under superior Russian firepower. Everyone said so. It appeared to be true. On paper, Ukraine had 220,000 troops plus 400,000 veterans with combat experience and modern weapons. A smaller force than Russia's, for sure. But these soldiers were motivated, ready to defend homes and families. And yet the cars streaming out of Kiev told another story. From early in the day, the streets were jammed as civilians sought a way out to Zhytomyr, west of Kiev, and from there to Lviv and the Polish border. Traffic on the boulevards moved slowly, and sometimes not at all. A great exodus had begun. It would grow into Europe's largest refugee crisis since 1945. There was no panic as such, but a sense that this newborn war would get dramatically worse. Reports suggested enemy formations had already crossed the international checkpoint and the border with Belarus. This was two hours' drive and 160 kilometres to the north, beyond the city of Chernihiv. The Russians were trundling Kievwoods through a primordial landscape of pine trees and swamp. It seemed Belarus's dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, was facilitating war on Kiev too, at Putin's personal request.
The war had lent Kiev a new and frantic tempo. The city moved faster and with greater intensity and purpose than before, as if a million separate atoms had been disturbed and violently shaken. A couple of cars and a yellow municipal bus sped down the Krushatik, rolling past a sign that read, I heart Ukraine. It was 9am. We were four hours into invasion day, February the 24th, 2022. The date, you imagined, would take its place alongside other storied ones, September the 1st, 1939, and September the 11th, 2001. Nearby, the Ukrainian national anthem rang out from a loudspeaker inside the trade union's building. Few were around to hear it. The office, overlooking the Maidan, had played a key role in the uprising eight years previously that saw then-president Viktor Yanukovych flee to Russia. The Heavenly Hundred Road, leading up to the main administration complex, was lined with shrines to demonstrators shot dead by Yanukovych's security forces. Since 2014, this European country of 43 million people had moved in an emphatically pro-EU direction. Its progress had been imperfect but dogged. Putin seemed determined to stop Ukraine's westward integration forever. Paradoxically, his theft of Crimea and war in the East had consolidated Ukrainian nationhood and identity. Differences that once existed melted away. The war made everything simpler. Putin and Russia were the enemy. A struggle for survival had begun. Defeat meant subjugation and extinction. It was Mikhail Bulgakov in his masterful novel, The White Guard, written a century ago, who dubbed Kiev the city with an uppercase C. Bulgakov had lived on Andreevsky descent, a street linking the upper town with Padil. The city, it seemed on that unhappy morning, would endure. It had lasted more than a thousand years. But how much of it would survive? And would Ukraine, some of it, all of it, gain new, harsher Russian masters? Thanks again for listening to The Guardian Long Read. That was The Night Everything Changed, Waiting for Russia's Invasion of Ukraine, an extract from my new book Invasion, published by Guardian Faber. Written and read by me, Luke Harding. Produced by Jessica Beck. The executive producer was Nicole Jackson. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.